we both <laughs> embarrassed ourselves significantly, I think, in that quiz. We thought that was going to go better, huh? <laughs> Reputation of Europe elects is forever damaged. Oh, no. And happy new year and welcome to the Europe Alex podcast, episode three. Uh, I'm Ewan Healy. I'm Gabriel Hedengrand. And in this episode, we join in the age-old tradition of contemplating what has happened through the last year as we begin a new one. So, Gabriel, happy new year. Happy new year to you. What's up, Ewan? What's your what's your new year's resolution and how's that going? Have you broken it already? I, I have not. Then? I have not broken it yet because I, I became a vegetarian on the 1st of January. Oh, wow. Um, and so I haven't eaten any meat yet, which is going pretty well. Um, Good for you. I'm enjoying it. Lots of, lots more cooking going on in my life, which is a lot of fun. Um, I, I decided not to pick anything like a ridiculous idea of like going to the gym uh, every week because I know I yes. would just fail. So I'll stick with vegetarianism. Yeah. What, what's yours? What's yours? Yeah, I decided to not pick anything. Oh. I'll stop. <laughs> and then I can't disappoint myself or anyone, so that's great. <laughs> can't uh, fail if you don't try, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's my approach to, to these things. <laughs> um, yeah. So we're going to sit down and talk polls, obviously, because this is the Europe Elects podcast, um, and elections and politics and statistics from the last year. And to do that with us, we have got our fearless leader, Tobias Gerhard Schminker. If you listen to our trailer, you'll remember his sweet voice from back then. He's going to be joining us a bit later on in the podcast to talk about 2019, what happened and what's to come in 2020. We're going to kick off first by chatting to uh, a brilliant a brilliant friend of the pod and a member of the Europolex team, Luca, about the most recent election, the first election of 2020 in the first podcast of 2020, all the way from Croatia. Yes. So we're very lucky to have our friend and colleague, uh, Luka Ivan Jukic here with us today, and he's going to help us all get our heads around the main takeaways of this election. So it's actually two round presidential elections. So the first round was just before Christmas in December, and the second one took place uh, a couple of weeks ago, really early on in January 2020. Hi, Luca, are you with us? Uh, hi, yeah, I am. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you for having me. Uh, so I'm going to just take a stab at giving a very brief introduction, and then uh, you're going to obviously spill your knowledge into this issue. But uh, if I understand correctly, the incumbent uh, called Kolinda Grabar-Kitarovic, representing the center-right HDZ party, she uh, was elected president in 2014-15 in quite a tight race ahead of a social democratic opponent. Uh, And she became not only the first female president in Croatia uh, since the country's democratization, but also the first one representing a center-right party for 15 years. So before we sort of dive into the election results, can you just give us a quick overview around, uh, about her tenure, uh, what sort of issues have been at the forefront in Croatia, and uh, why do you think she ended up losing? Yeah, yeah. all right. Um, so yeah, I think, I think an important point to give immediately is that the role of president in Croatia is not really that significant. It's mostly a ceremonial post, so the president doesn't really have all that much power to do anything. So really, this campaign was, a, it was it was very personal because the candidates can't really make many policy proposals. And um, that's kind of just how it ended up being. And basically, over the past five years, a lot of the main issues have been cultural. And this is where she has especially been very active in these kind of like little, you could say, cultural war squabbles. She likes to kind of play up, I guess, minor cultural issues. She was, for example, 
during the World Cup, this is like where she gained a lot of popularity because she flew over to Russia when Croatia uh, made it to the final and she was cheering and kind of like portraying herself as the national team's number one cheerleader. And so, she, you know, she was trying to kind of build up this um, persona of being close to the people and all this. And then in the run-up to the election, she started to talk about emigration a lot. She said that would be a kind of signature issue for her. But this was kind of difficult because she's she's associated with the ruling center-right HDZ party, who have been who have ruled Croatia for you know vast majority of the country's democratic history, uh-huh. and for many people, they represent kind of a lot of the negative elements of that period, like corruption, and um, well, yeah, in large part, yeah, corruption is the biggest one, but also I guess you could say economic mismanagement and things like that. Mm-hmm. So you could say the most important issue in this election was uh, this issue of the HDZ and whether people were voting for it or against it, because the other two main candidates, former Prime Minister uh, Zoran Milanovic, he was very much campaigning on an anti-HDZ platform. But, uh, okay. So yeah. she kind of had to pay the price for people's grievances with HDZ. Yeah, yeah. So she she tried to kind of distance herself a little bit, um, which didn't really work because, I mean, she is, I mean, technically she's an independent, so this is kind of also important background. The, the president has to be independent once they get okay. into office, but she is still like part of the party and, or sorry, okay. not technically part of the party, but, you know, very closely associated. Okay, that makes sense. So how about the new president-elect then? So his name is Zoran Milanovic. And he won the second round with 52.7% against uh, 47.3% for the previous president. So uh, still quite a a comfortable win in a two-horse race. And he's a member of the Social Democratic Party, affiliated with the center-left Socialist and Democrats group in the European Parliament. So tell us about him. So you're saying he, uh, I would assume, would have run on sort of an anti-center-right, anti-HDZ campaign. Is that correct? And like, why do you think he ended up winning the second round. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, to also give a bit of background about him, so he was prime minister until 2015. Mm-hmm. And ironically, he was he was voted out of office by the current party, the HDZ, which is pretty, it was kind of like an embarrassment. Like he was not considered a successful prime minister. And he was kind of, ne- he was negatively viewed. I mean, generally in Croatia, all politicians are negatively viewed. <laughs> but um, yeah, he, so he was voted out of office. And now the fact that he came back and ran a campaign was kind of, kind of an anomaly. And I guess he, he was trailing in the polls for a long time. He, he definitely managed to capitalize on many years of dissatisfaction, particularly amongst urban Croatia and also the, the more developed regions in Croatia, which tend to support left of center and liberal parties, which in this election, there was a large increase in turnout in those regions specifically to vote for him. And a large part of this is it's not just the economy and corruption, but as I said before, these these cultural issues, particularly when it comes to the past, yeah. are are still very important in Croatia. And I think for for much of the urban population, the more liberal leaning population, these issues are maybe not seen as that important. Whereas an, a very important part of the conservative ideology in Croatia yeah. is is nationalism and talking a lot about past. And it, that also comes with revisionism. So so when you talk about cultural issues, is that is that sort of similar stuff to in the rest of Europe, like immigration, religion, or is there anything that stands out in Croatia, would you say? Yeah, so I, I would say the main thing is nationalism in Croatia. Mm-hmm. I don't think 
like for example immigration frankly nobody really wants to immigrate to croatia because the the, the larger problem is <laughs> don't <mass>. say that <laughs> well the larger problem is mass emigration yeah i think croatia maybe along with lithuania has one of the worst rates of emigration in the eu so i i think a lot of the cultural issues in croatia are related to the past there's a lot of re-examining and talking about for example world war ii and the Croatian War for Independence in the 1990s and you know a lot of talk about that and also there are other cultural issues like uh, the role of the church in society this is another thing that the left and the right argue about a lot in Croatia because the church basically supports the ruling party and the ruling party also supports the church and oh, they, wow. they 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 kind of advocate for much closer ties between state yeah. and church interesting which do exist in Croatia I I think the the government gives a lot of subsidies to the Catholic Church. So uh, well, so how the sort of standout star, I guess, that sort of fits into a more broad European narrative of the wave of populism and things like that is Miroslav Skoro, who was just over two percent from getting to the second round, actually. And can you just tell us a bit about him and how important was his campaign, really, and how has it been reported on? Yeah, okay, so here we get to, I think, like, this This was very much the big story of this election, because, so Miroslav Škoro is a, he's a popular folk singer who, especially in the 90s, he had a, one very famous song that was, like, related to the war, and he has been around for decades, and people know him, and he's well-liked amongst, you could say, particularly in rural areas, and especially in the region of Slavonia, which he won in the first round. So he kind of came out as a, a, a right-wing challenger to... The incumbent, but he was not very openly right-wing. He was kind of, I think, from the beginning, he already had the support of the more conservative political factions, which, to give a bit of context, the HDZ has basically served as kind of a big tent for all right-wing forces for a long time, but under the current prime minister, it's become much more centrist, so a lot of the more right-wing figures have either left or are still in it, but kind of actively challenging Prime Minister Plankovic, all those right-wing forces kind of rallied around him because they've been very unsuccessful generally and they saw in him kind yeah. of a vessel to, to get their ideas heard, to get to power. But he was officially an independent. Um, okay. But how do you think the results from this and maybe the rise of Skoro might impact electoral politics leading up to the next general election? So um, I think the bit, even though the election itself is not that important, it is very important for Croatian electoral politics because... This is definitely an enormous victory for this center-left uh, Social Democratic Party and a huge loss for the ruling HDZ. And particularly for Prime Minister Plenković, there's probably going to be an internal battle within the HDZ leading up to the parliamentary elections, which has never happened in Croatia before. Yeah. So I think the thing to look out for leading up to the elections is definitely a lot of infighting within the HDZ and maybe even an open challenge to the prime minister. Interesting. Yeah, it's quite interesting, this thing of, I guess, something that we see in a lot of countries in Europe, the center-right party being squeezed from the right and how they deal with that. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and explaining all this to us. Hopefully, we'll have you back again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, I look forward to being on here again in a year's time after the parliamentary elections. This is the podcast of the Paul Aggregator EuropeLex. Every two weeks, EuropeLex Head of Communications, Ewan Healy, and contributor for Sweden, Gabriel Hedengren, that's me, take you across Europe talking politics, polls, and a whole assortment of general nerdiness. We are currently looking for podcast sponsors. 
So get in touch via our website or at podcast at europelex.eu if you'd like to advertise with us. Hello, welcome back. And now joining us is, of course, the famed Tobias Gerhard Schminker, founder, director and all-time hero of Europelex. How are you doing, Tobias? I'm doing great. It's beautiful to be with you guys again. Yeah, so good to have you. So we're just going to do a bit of a chat right now about wrapping up what it was that happened in 2019, because we were just talking about it before we came on air. There's been so much that's happened. So Tobias, what was your highlight of the year? What's, what's really jumped out of you in the polls? So 2019 was a crazy year with so many highlights. I remember the European election where we finally saw a rise in turnout and we saw quite a big rise in turnout. And I, I like to think that we part- contributed to that. We had, for example, the Greek and the Portuguese election, where for us election nerds, it was amazing because we had so many small, new, partially weird parties coming up and watching that was quite amazing. But my main highlight, honestly, was a local election, which may surprise some people, (laughs) because this year we had the mayoral election in Istanbul, I want to remind you all of. And we saw that the guy who did not support Erdogan, the opposition candidate, won the mayorship in Istanbul. Was that, that in 2019? Oh my! Yeah, 2019. <laughs> there was so much going on, and that was my crazy. 30 highlight. Oh yeah, amazing. Um, Gabriel, do you have any highlights? Yeah, so it's a bit biased, I guess, but since I'm uh, I'm from Sweden, but my highlight was the Danish general election because uh, it saw this huge drop of the Danish People's Party, which has been sort of the sun everything circles around, what everyone talks about. They saw a huge drop, whereas the Social Democrats came to power in this counterintuitive way, because at the same time, the governing party actually saw their vote share increase by 5%, or the party of the prime minister. Mm. So I thought it was a very classic sort of multi-party representative democracy election with huge changes. So that was my sort of highlight and that I find found also, I guess, most shocking. Yeah. Tobias, what would you say was a big upset? So... If we talk about shocks, um, it's it's usually hard if you know the polls so well. Not many elections are really shocks to you. But we, we did have some electoral shocks. And I remember in the European election in Ireland, I was watching RTE. That's the public broadcaster there in the, in the middle of the night. And they were publishing the exit poll at the time. And we had everything set up with the diagrams and our posts so we can publish results on the social media as they come in. And then they present the result for the Green Party. And the Green Party is just so much stronger than expected from the polls that I put in the data and in our diagram, the Greens just break the diagram. So all this preparation was for nothing because I completely reset up the diagram. We posted it super late, the result. It was totally chaotic. But I remember this as a shock because this was not just happening in Ireland later. Ireland was kind of the blueprint what would happen as a green wave during the European elections. We saw results going far beyond the expectations for the Greens in other countries like Portugal, like Austria, Germany or elsewhere. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that there were a number of elections that gave us a little bit of a a shake up like the green wave in the European election. You know, at the beginning of this conversation, I'd legitimately forgotten the European election was in 2019. Feels like so long ago, but it's literally the, the main job of what we do. And I just completely forgot that it was last year. But anyway, yeah, there were so many other really interesting elections. I loved covering the presidential election in North Macedonia back in April and May of this year, looking at the relationship between a sort of candidate states for the European Union and the impact that that has on domestic politics through the, the lens of 
the naming dispute with Greece was a really interesting chapter of Eastern European history, which sort of moved on in, in 2019. Um, and of course, very interesting elections in Denmark and in Ukraine. But I thought the biggest shock, and you guys can feel free to disagree with me on this, was the nail biter in Thuringia in Germany last year, which in which the, the liberal, the, the context for, if you don't know, that in Thuringia, there's a 5% threshold uh, for entering the regional parliament. And uh, the FDP, the Liberal Party affiliated with the Renew Europe group, entered the regional parliament by being just 73 votes over the threshold, just over 5%. I thought that was incredibly exciting. I, I, it was a nail biter. I love I love thresholds. That's my that's my thing. Yeah. My king. It's not my fault. I totally agree. I totally agree. And let's remember, in election night, we didn't know whether FDP, so the Liberals, or the Greens would make it across the threshold. It was a nail biter for both parties during election night. It was truly insane. I agree. So, Tobias, looking back at 2019 and all the wisdom that you've you've gained, what do you think you've you've learnt? What's the biggest lesson for you? From biggest takeaway from 2019? That connects very much to what we just discussed, because you really need to expect the unexpected. Two examples. I expected the right to plateau or maybe even decrease because the immigration topic is becoming less of a topic in election campaigns, but that was not the case. The right has been rising throughout 2019 in Europe. Moreover, I was surprised by how climate change actually pushed away all other topics across the continent as an important topic. And the lesson I kind of learned from this is that the younger generation still has a role in politics in Europe because usually they have been sidelined or they didn't turn out to elections, the younger generations, just sidelined also because their numbers are fairly small compared to other continents, compared to the overall population. But this shift of topics towards climate change has been triggered by Greta Thunberg and the Fridays for Future demonstrations, which were essentially a youth movement. And it the lesson I learned was, hey, the youth is not dead in Europe. They have a political say and influence. And yeah, that was also great to see, in, in the, no matter how you stand on the climate change or greater tuneback, but it was encouraging to see that the youth can still participate and influence politics. Wow. You're absolutely right. What, a, what an inspiring note to end on, Tobias. Thank you so much uh, for having that chat with us. But don't go anywhere because we have a first for the podcast now. Yeah, so anyway, what we've been doing, we've been looking over all this uh, data and all these election results from 2019. And I've decided that I'm going to lead a little quiz between you, Tobias, and you, Ewan. So how it's going to work is that I'm going to tell you the top five list that I've put together. And then I'm going to give you each a chance to guess one of the parties or countries on that qualified to get on that top five list. And then we'll do a tally and see who wins. Does that sound good? Oh, it sounds boy. amazing, but I'm definitely going to lose to Tobias. Uh, <laughs> oh, I hope so. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this, this sounds terrible, but also fun. Let's do yes, it. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm sure we'll all learn something from this, which is the point. Yeah, that's fine. So the first category is top five gains in national parliamentary elections. So that's what five parties in Europe have grown the most uh, between the previous election and the 2019 election. You and go. I think the one I'm going to go for is there was an Austrian green surge, an Austrian green surge. So the Austrian Green Party. That's a point for you. They uh, 
they actually gained 10.1% in the Austrian election and uh, landed at 13.9%. So they start off quite low, but uh, that's definitely a huge surge. So they're the third biggest surge of 2019. One point for you and Tobias. So we had the Estonian national parliamentary election this year. And I know they didn't grow as much as the Greens in Austria, but they did grow quite a bit. The National Conservative EKRE party? Yes, so the Conservative People's Party of Estonia, actually, they come in fifth. So you also get a point to bias. Yes! (laughs) They got got 17.8% in their election, and that was a gain of 9.7 percentage points. So look at you. It's like you guys follow this stuff. Second <laughs> category. So now we're going uh, to the top five losses in national parliamentary elections. So who did the worst in 2019 compared to the previous election before that? You and go. Oh, this is really hard and I'm not 100% sure. But I think the New Democratic Party in Greece, the centre-right. They actually, that's wrong. Because <laughs> they had the most gains. That's yeah, you're right. So I've just I've just blown it there. Absolutely, you just really blown it there, Ewan. But thank <laughs> you for your contribution. So New Democracy of Greece was actually a party that gained the most out of all parties last year in the European yeah, Union. They gained eleven point seven six percentage points. So that's X for you, Tobias. So I was thinking about the Danish People's Party, which is affiliated with. Uh, ID group in the European Parliament. Correct. So once again, you pick number five on our list. So the People's Party, <laughs> they got 8.7% uh, in their election in June, which was 12.4 percentage points below uh, the previous election. So a huge drop for them. And it's now 2-1 Tobias. Yes. Yeah, yeah it should be. I, I'm, I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. So the, now we're going to talk about the turnout. <laughs> So this is a bit trickier, I guess. So the top five largest turnout gains in national parliamentary elections in 2019. You and go. I've really no idea on this, but I remember we talked about on the podcast a, a turnout increase in Romania. So I'm going to say the Romanian presidential election. Not top, not top five, I'm afraid. Damn it. So, uh, you sh- Tobias? That's very difficult. Um, I n- remember the UK had quite a rise in turnout. That's wrong as well. Yeah, turnout went it's down so in the UK, Tobias. Turnout went down in the UK, Tobias. Really? And now, we, and now yeah. all, of our, all of our listeners will know. So <laughs> Nobody should ever, this should never be aired. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. You've got a point, Tobias. So the biggest gain in turnout was in Poland. Oh. With ah. a 10.8 percentage point increase in turnout, uh, followed by the first election of the year in Spain that saw a 5.3% turnout gain. So Tobias, it's still you 2-1. How about the five biggest turnout losses in national parliamentary elections? Well, I, I would I would say now the United Kingdom, maybe. <laughs> Again, no. It's a hard one. So <laughs> I have no quite... idea. I'm going to try Sweden, just because there was an election this year. No. That's also wrong, you. Nope. Oh, damn it. <laughs> so again, the biggest turnout loss, and this is an election I must say has been greatly overlooked, was in the Moldovan general election early last year. Uh, and they saw a change in turnout that went down with a bit over eight percentage points, mm. uh, which is quite huge. And they were followed by Portugal that saw a 7% decrease. And interestingly enough, honorable mention to Spain, 
that was on our top five for biggest turnout gains in their April election and had the third largest decree- decrease for their November one. <laughs> and now our last one. Uh, there have been a lot of new parties this year that have made huge strides in parliamentary elections. And I've, I've looked through all, of, all the data and come up with the five who have made their biggest splash in their first ever election. Do either of you want to have a shot at guessing who, what those are? got to be Ukraine, right? It's got to be seven of the people. Yes. That's, they were the biggest. So they got 43.2%, which is huge in the parliamentary election. So that obviously came after the uh, successful presidential election of Zelensky. Do you want to have a stab, Tobias? You got me sweating here, but maybe <laughs> in Greece, Greek solution? No. No. I was going to say, thankfully, no, <laughs> not to be biased. But actually, again, there were quite a volatile sort of election climate in Eastern Europe. So Moldova saw a new party called ACUM get 26.8%. Who knew? Of course. Yeah. And on the last episode, we spoke about the Samaritanese election. So they had a liberal party called Domani Motus Liberi that got 6.2%. That also qualifies. So overall, I know this is tough. It to all. Oh. We all, win, we all win and we all lose. Wow, what a lovely way to start the year. <laughs> we both embarrassed ourselves significantly, I think, in that quiz. We thought that was going to go better, huh? <laughs> Reputation of Europe elects is forever damaged. Oh, no. It's gone well. Tobias, thank you so much for coming on. It's been super fun chatting to you and doing this quiz. And I'm sure you'll be back for more quizzes and we'll be better next time. I will, but I will still beat you. It was fun with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tobias. See you later, Tobias. See you guys. Now, just to finish up at Europolex, we love to educate our audience and talk about all things Europe. And things can get a little bit confusing. So what we thought we'd do is try and clear through some of the jargon really quickly at the end of this episode. And hopefully at the end of every episode to now on and talk a little bit about the European Union's Systems. We're going to think of a good name for this segment, so email in if you've got a good idea. We're going to talk about commissioners today. So the European Commission is the government of the European Union and has a sort of cabinet level organisation filled with commissioners. And what we're going to do is we're just going to chat about a couple of commissioners today. Who are you going to talk to us about show and tell style? Gabriel? So I'm going to talk to you about the transport commissioner. So her name is Adina Valian, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, and she's the commissioner for Romania. Valian is a member of the National Liberal Party, which is a member of the centre-right European People's Party in Parliament. Uh, and before becoming the 18th commissioner of transport, she was a member of the European Parliament, so an MEP since Romania's accession to the European Union, so serving more than 12 years. So she's a real EU veteran. From 2014 to 2017, she's one of the Parliament's vice presidents. So basically, in her duties as Commissioner for Transport, she's responsible for the development of transport infrastructure in the European Union, believe it or not. And that includes modernizing transport systems, promoting sustainable and alternative fuel, and ensuring passenger rights. Uh, So we'll see how she gets on over the next five years. Uh, Who did you, what name did you pick out the hat, Ewan? So... Each of the member states gets to appoint each one of the commissioners to the cabinet of the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. And I've got the Cypriot individual, Cypriot candidate, Stella Kiriakadu. 
She is the Commissioner for Health and Food Safety. So a little bit of a background on her. She is a, from a medical background, she was a psychiatrist, psychologist before she entered politics. And then she was the president of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, the first Cypriot to hold that job and only the third woman. And she, back home, is a member of the Cypriot Party Democratic Rally, which is a member of the centre-right European People's Party in the European Parliament, just like uh, Valéan that Gabriel just talked about. In her new role as Health and Food Safety Commissioner, her portfolio covers areas like public health and the crises that comes with that, so pandemics and endemics and all that sort of kind of thing. Things like smoking laws, medical drug regulation, and even some involvement in the agriculture food industry. We're going to be introducing you to a few more commissioners in the future and whatever you want to know about the European Parliament or the European structures. So if you've got any questions, email us through to them at podcast at europelex.eu and we will try and answer your questions on the podcast. Indeed. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to stay up to date with European politics between episodes. And make sure you subscribe and review this podcast to keep us around for more. You can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media and on Instagram at Europe underscore Lex. See you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Hedenbrunn. The managing editor was Polychronis Karempolis. The producer and audio engineers were Raphael Peña-Rios and Leon Liesener. The script was written by our host and Matthew Nicholson. And the music was by Jose Alvarado. Woohoo! Nice, tasty, good.